Indigenous Action, where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied America. This is an autonomous anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and clause-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire and may the bridges we burn together light our way. My name is Klee Benali. I am your host today for the Indigenous Action Podcast. We are excited for today's topic where we are going to be digging right into addressing the nonprofit industrial complex, which we identify as a system of relationships designed by colonial and capitalist forces to manage and neutralize effective radical organizing and reinforce capitalism and the settler colonial state. Before we get into all that, we're going to listen to a promo from the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, which we are part of, and you can check them out at channelzeronetwork.com. Marge, I agree with you in theory. In theory, communism works. In theory. In theory. So I says to Mabel, I says, oh, hello, I'm Tom. I'm Alicia. And I'm Nate. And we're the hosts of Works in Theory podcast on the Channel Zero Network. Have you ever been in an argument on Twitter and just wished you could drop a devastating David Graeber quote, but hadn't actually read any of his works? Or are you interested in the foundational works of anarchism and communism, but weren't willing to slog through 300 pages of 19th century text? Works in Theory podcast has done the hard work for you. We read works like Peter Kropotkin's Mutual Aid or David Graeber's Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology and Make them accessible through casual conversations. Our whole first season is up now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Search for Works in Theory Podcast. You can subscribe. You can even go ahead and listen to Works in Theory Podcast because... Communism works in theory. All right, so welcome. This show will address particularly how the indigenous nonprofit industrial complex and capitalists are barriers to building collective power towards liberation. We have some familiar voices that will be joining us today, as well as Morningstar Gali, who is a sister in the movement that I've known for many years, and we've worked together on a range of different um, actions and struggles, uh, particularly to protect sacred places. We wanted to begin by sharing a bit from Insight, who published the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, beyond the nonprofit industrial complex back in 2007. And Insight defines the nonprofit industrial complex, or NPIC as we'll be referring it to, as a system of relationships between the state or local and federal governments, the owning classes, foundations, and nonprofit slash non-governmental organizations or NGOs, social service, and social justice organizations. They further define the nonprofit industrial complex as a set of symbiotic relationships that link political and financial technologies of state and owning class control with surveillance over public political ideology, 
including an especially emergent progressive and leftist social movements. Uh, and we highly recommend that book because it gives a history of the nonprofit industrial complex and charity work, which uh, obviously when we talk about mutual aid, we talk about solidarity, not charity, and why it has come to be and how um, in more depth uh, and in anecdotes with a range of different voices and stories, and including indigenous voices, why the nonprofit industrial complex should be abolished. Um in their book, Insight um, provides sort of outline of some of the concerns that they have um, and as a whole and in the way that which capitalist interests in the state use nonprofits to monitor and control social justice movements, to divert public monies into private hands through foundations, to manage and control dissent in order to make the world safe for capitalism to redirect activist energies into career-based models of organizing instead of mass-based organizing capable of actually transforming society, to allow corporations to mask their exploitative and colonial work practices through philanthropic work. Uh, and the final point that they make is to encourage social, social movements to model themselves after capitalist structures rather than challenge them. And so with Indigenous Action, we published a piece called Smash the Nonprofit Indigenous Complex Smash Capitalism. And uh, we outline um, some other points, which you can check out our piece on our website. We'll have a link in the description for the show as well. But we list out that the MPIC is inherently extractive and colonial. Uh, of course, it upholds capitalism, that uh, nonprofit organizations are more accountable to funders than their communities. They foster abusive power relationships, uh, that their strategies are explicitly reformist, that they can also perpetuate false representation and that ultimately the overall strategy of the nonprofit uh, industrial complex is colonial as it upholds unjust power relationships and perpetuates capitalism. And just a note, we recorded this interview in sections due to some scheduling issues with our guests. So with that, yate to our guests and welcome. Please introduce yourselves. Hey, good to see you again. Uh, this is Jen Bearcat. I'm Shoshone and Paiute, and I'm calling in today from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, yeah, I'm interested in, in seeing what we get into today. This is Kim Balam of the Indigenous Action Podcast. Chimmy Sunway, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's great to be here with all of you. My name is Morningstar Galley. I am Ajimawi Band of Pit River. And uh, what else can I share? I apologize. It's been a really long day uh, running on a lack of sleep, kind of as usual here. But um, I've been organizing here in occupied Ohlone territories um, throughout Northern California for many years. Um, I, you know, could say dating back to um, just being raised within, uh, you know, a movement of, of Indigenous justice and being raised within um, a movement where we have consistently had to um, fight for uh, our freedoms, our protections, all of it. Um, and so, yeah, just sharing a little bit of that, um, just coming off of the uh, 
the Apache Stronghold Caravan that has been here over the last few days. So it was was an honor to help to host them and help to host a listening session that, that we held here in um, Yalamu territory with them. Yeah, and it's powerful to see. I watched part of the live stream for the uh, after court press conference today, and it reminded me of um, some of our collaboration because uh, years ago you helped to coordinate and host us when we were there as far as the Save the Peaks Coalition and bringing that struggle before the Ninth Circuit there. So it was interesting just to reflect on some of the same arguments that were made then because, you know, we've been in these sacred site battles in the front lines for, it feels like decades now. And you, of course, doing powerful work to protect Medicine Lake. You know, we really pay attention to these cases, but we also have a lot of negative experiences. So, you know, I think earlier we were talking about a little bit of the optimism and some of the political strategy, legal strategies around that case. And it seemed to be something that reminded me where we were um, standing there, the you know steps of the courthouse or, you know, on occupied Ohlone lands um, facing the same battles. Absolutely. We've had hearings um, on those same steps and the same Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on Medicine Lake, on Cave Rock, on uh, the, the number of times um, that we've helped to host with, with Save the Peaks. But yeah, same, it feels kind of exactly what you said, same argument, different day, different decade. And thank you for sharing that and elaborating a little bit more of your organizing experience. And we're actually going to get into that a little bit more with something that we don't typically do here with sharing our organizational experience and experience with the nonprofit industrial complex, primarily because in producing the show and thinking about it, uh, some of the pushback that we get in our critiques with the nonprofit industrial complex is that people respond usually with like, well, what have you done? What are you doing? You know, um, and we don't want to lay out our activist credentials and portfolios and all that because that's really not what we're interested in. We're not interested in building that kind of world. But um, I think that with the introductions, we'll be able to provide a sense of the experience and intention and what has really informed our analysis that will help folks who listen to the show and help folks who um, are building their understandings of um, why it's important to provide these kinds of critiques uh, in these spaces, especially when so much is at stake. Um, And I'll go first a bit. Um, This is a short, I guess, introduction overview of where I come from, but I was was born in the movement, um, as they say. Um, in 1974, Congress passed PL 93-531, which is a Relocation Act, uh, which forced the removal of um, my relatives. Uh, more than 20,000 Diné people have been forcibly removed from our ancestral lands up in Black Mesa and Zithagene. And this is also where Remy comes from as well. So we know each other through that and our families. But um, my family was divided. Um, part of our lands were, you know, split for the Hobi part of them, split for Diné. And this ultimately was a resource land grab uh, to make way for further resource extraction because one of the largest strip mine operations for coal was operated by Peabody Coal in this area. And it was an extreme act of conquer and divide for resource extractive industries. So my relatives resisted. I was born in 1975, so it gives you a sense of how old I am, right? Um, and some of my earliest memories were going to the meetings, going to protests. Um, my 
you know, I had a sign that said BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, don't kill me, I'm only three. Uh, it's one of my earliest memories outside a Bureau of Indian Affairs office, relocation office they had here in, in occupied Confluent or Flagstaff. Um, and so I, I really didn't come to my own as far as an organizer until I was 15 years old. Um, but I have a lot of experience, both uh, mainly bad, um, that has informed what I do, why I do it in terms of the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, in 2007, I helped to start Kalahua Info Shop. Uh, in 2001, I actually helped to start and found um, Indigenous Action, but it led to Kalahua Info Shop, which is a radical anti-capitalist resource center in response to a lot of the the problems with people exploiting and extracting movements and organizing. I mean, particularly up in Big Mountain, it's important for folks to understand that millions and millions of dollars were made off of that struggle internationally, raised in the name of my relatives, my elders. Um, there was, you know, multiple incidents where my grandmother, Roberta Blackoat's name, was forged on checks and people cashed in and exploited and just... You know, even our own people exploited, um, you know, vulnerable elders who were our frontline matriarchs who started that resistance. And this is, you know, what I grew up facing is just being extraordinarily distrustful and skeptical of why people are there for, you know, these struggles, what that means, um, and, uh, you know, how to challenge that. And so I've grown up with that um, exploitation being a reality, um, very, very um uh, detrimental and dangerous in our communities. So, uh, and I also have experiences I'll talk later on about the struggle to protect the San Francisco peaks where that struggle was, uh, we had people coming in to try to undermine and, and, and exploit that, uh, as well. But we ultimately drew the line saying that this is a spiritual struggle for the protection of this land, this, this mountain that is holy to 13 indigenous nations and nobody should be here because they have a paycheck. Um, and this is a spiritual struggle, so it demands that. So that's um, a lot of what and why I do what I do. Um, but yeah, that's a bit of my short introduction. I took a little bit of a different route. I, I feel like um, compared to some of the rest of the speakers here today, um, I wasn't raised within like a strong like uh, resistance family or anything, or as far as I knew when I was younger. Um, I actually began my, my work when I was at a tribal college um, I, I had gone to the college actually just to get off the streets and, um, it was, it was more out of necessity. Um, and then I, and then I found out I was actually still pretty good at school. So it became a hustle. Um, we, we just started out as like a group of, of friends that got bored. And so we started organizing little events and stuff. And then, uh, unfortunately we at our school experienced a very um, horrific incident where a young woman was raped on campus and we kind of uh, we we felt that we had to turn our attention to that, and it got into more of of um, I guess alcohol awareness um, and just personal safety. I guess as coming from indigenous communities or as indigenous people coming to a larger urban area where there is a high crime rate and there there things like this happen there, and so we had to conduct ourselves differently. And we wanted to I guess alert the other students of this when they were coming in. Um, and we we just started out as a as a group of friends doing this, and then um, the next semester, 
uh, I was surprised when I found out that the college had actually commissioned a grant writer and she had a secretary and there was a bunch of, and, um, you know, so they had like, I guess three grants or something that they scored from like the office of women's health and SAMHSA and these bigger, I mean, these large government corporations or, um, entities. And, um, and so I started getting paid to do it and I was like, Oh yeah, that's cool. And it was still, it was kind of like a work study thing. And, uh, by the time, you know, my time there was up, you know, I, I was running a, a program. <laughs> I had basically written a program and, um, I had, you know, anywhere between 17 and 35 students under me that were working also. And so, um, we would do trainings and things like this. And, and I actually wrote a curriculum for the, the college. And I didn't even, at that time, I didn't even know that this was like a, a, a field. I didn't know it was a job until I got ready to transfer. <laughs> and then I was like, um, cause I, I was done with all my credits at, at the college. And so I was going to transfer to a four-year school. And, um, I was like, man, I remember thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool if I got to do this as like a job? That would be the coolest. <laughs> I didn't even know that it existed as I didn't know organizing was like a paid, a thing. Um, then I was told. <laughs> and so I went into sociology when I transferred and, um, I got a four-year degree and, um, I went in directly into what I thought was my dream job <laughs> right out of college. Um, I was working with the social services program for a local Pueblo and, um, I was doing, I, it was a really good job. I enjoyed it. I was successful at it. And, uh, but then I started seeing like the, I guess the edges, <laughs> the edges started to come up and I started seeing the the faults. And when I started calling them on their ethical issues, um, they didn't like that. And it, and that became kind of like a resounding thing that happened with me. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't find an org that actually um, was ethical or, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't small ethical shit. It was like big shit. Like, why are you even doing that? It, it was just astounding to me when I, when I started seeing the, the bigger picture of it. And um, it came to the point where, you know, I was, I was eventually blackballed from, from um, my industry <laughs> and uh, I, I, couldn't really get a job in it anymore. And I didn't want a job in it anymore. And I realized at that point that this is a whole big industry. This is an industry. Um, and it makes a lot of money and it, it provides a lot of um, passes for the entire country, the entire government. And I figured out that at the end of the day, it is a threat. And um, I really started focusing, especially after Standing Rock, after what we experienced out there. Um, that was the first time that like I ever personally experienced um, a lot of the governmental um, efforts towards silencing the resistance. Um, a lot of the things that we saw out there were, was really eye-opening. Instead of giving like a, a biographical background, I'll just, my background will come out in how I talk about the nonprofit. Um, the, the main argument at a fundamental level that everyone makes is that it's a necessary evil, the nonprofit and working with them. My question has always been, then why is it necessary and is it necessary? And I would argue it's coercive. You know, the majority of my interaction with nonprofit organizations were namely nonprofit legal, uh, legal aid in one way, shape or form. And that's because that allowed and provide for coverage for anything I did. Um, 
then within that was also seeing systematically um, the work that myself or grassroots organizations that I was part of would be co-opted by a nonprofit as it swoops in to take it over. And more often than not, they were inexperienced. And the only thing that really prevented them from being able to co-opt stuff was having uh, a, an experienced, cohesive nonprofit, not nonprofit, sorry, uh, experienced, cohesive, and militant group that was already in in place so that it was not easily persuaded or um, waylaid or redirected away from stuff. And then inevitably what you would see is the same nonprofit organizations and particularly the people involved in it that – and I would argue that in reality what nonprofits do is they create neocolonialism because that's what they want to reproduce. They want to reproduce – a capitalist agent and a settler agent that wants to create complicity and um, kind of a, a a cooperative relationship with the state and which is to say the settler institutions as they are. And what they what they'll inevitably do is place themselves as gatekeepers and intermediaries. And if they can't do that. Then they then they start systematically attacking you, and you can actually see the insidious and insincere side of these supposed people. Everyone says, "Oh, but they're good people." You may have a good person in an organization. That does not mean that the organization doesn't have its own mind structurally and institutionally that makes it do certain things just to serve its own interests. Or that a leader is somehow of that organization not going to be aligned with the organization's self-interest. They have, and they're a leader of that organization because they are aligned with the organizational self-interest, not the communities, not whatever the issue is, not the notion of justice, not the notion of land back or whatever it may be. And then in the modern sense, what we're seeing has been um, like – and I described this in a previous um, podcast is the, the industrialization, not just of a, of industrial complex, but the industrial production of professional activists that inevitably cut their militant teeth or, or, or wave their militant flag, if you will, by virtue of the of their work in the nonprofit, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is also seeing how the necessities of capitalism continually undermine and the colonial state because they're intertwined continually undermine grassroots organizing by taking some of the best and most capable people and making them dependent and exclusively employable within the nonprofit space and. And it re- and what that does is it removes the the element of actually struggling to kind of undermine something because in in and essentially when it comes to indigenous organizing fundamentally we're all insurgents you know if we're not insurgents we're collaborators right and and if and if that and if you can't if that is not in your head you haven't asked that question 
then you should easily recognize what side of the line you're on. And we're not on the same side of the line, you know? Um, and so the nonprofit th then sits in there as an arbiter for the state or an apologist for the state. And it fundamentally is like, it's a form of like soft power. If we want to use that like generic term and they become more and more and more important. What we're actually seeing domestically within the U.S. and I'd say Canada is we're seeing the NGOization of, of movements that were being contended with during the anti-globalization movement primarily. You'd see in, in spaces like Chiapas or, or um, in, in Peru or Bolivia, wherever, you would see NGOs move into that space with nonprofit money and doing anything from developing projects to water projects to schools or what have you, the carrot, if you will, in order to undermine what was going to be autonomous organizing in that space and the power that was being developed and, and that the way that they were doing it independent of the reliance on their own state. So instead, they become an outside agent. An outside agent comes in and becomes dependent on an outside agent to enable what they're doing and derail the actual progress that they're actually achieving. And we're just seeing the same thing happen domestically. It had already, we'd already been seeing that for years and years and years, but now it's just more pronounced. And it's become kind of the, uh, it is the culture today. Morningstar, you have a lot of experience in and outside of the nonprofit industrial complex. So curious if you could share some of your experiences and concerns and maybe some pointers uh, beyond you know, organizing outside or beyond the nonprofit industrial complex? Sure. I think just as was mentioned a little bit earlier, some of the organizing, you know, I can remember um, with the San Francisco Peaks caravan when there were, um, there was, there were caravans um, traveling out here. And so we were, you know, scrambling to just figure out, um, you know, what the media support was going to look like, what, you know, what it was very grassroots. Um, I remember that we were organizing essentially out of my home, out of my auntie's home, um, you know, had media support out of, out of the vehicles. And there were a number of local organizations that basically showed up to the events, showed up to the welcoming um, events and, you know, handed us their card and was like, Hey, if we would have known about this, we could have, have helped here, you know, here's our card. And, and afterwards I just kind of saw, um, what unfolded was, you know, them taking credit for a lot of this work that we were doing, you know, pulling, I was a student at the time. So I just remember using, you know, what, little like student, like FAFSA funds that I had and, you know, really just trying to pull, pull things together. And, um, I think the same thing happened, you know, with the longest walk Two back in 2008, there were a number of organizations and especially, um, native led organizations that really kind of clenched on and, and took credit for some of that work. And so I think that was very eye opening for me. I just come you know, coming from a place of where there wasn't any really funding resources available. Um, I think there's kind of the, the go-tos that I've, you know, seen, seen you mentioned, but there's also, 
you know, these white-led organizations that have created these, um, you know, indigeneity programs. Um, I won't mention any names, but I'll say Bioneers, for example. Um, even this past Sunrise Gathering that we held on Alcatraz Island, um, I was really going back and forth with them because they put this big event page up on the main Bioneers um, social media and said that they were hosting a live stream of our sunrise gathering. And so I contacted them and said, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> you're not going to do that. You're, you've continued to co-opt Indigenous peoples. You've continued to really um, profit off of, off of us and off of our struggles. And so you're not going to show up and you're not going to think that you can just, you know, show up. And I think I made a, a post or something that said, you know, that, you know, the same, it's the same kind of ongoing um, exploitation that, that they've continued to participate in. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of the same issues over many decades um, where it doesn't seem to, to change very much. It's um it's interesting that you bring up the Save the Peaks court case, uh, particularly because when we organized that, and that was back in 2006 in the midst of this massive sacred sites battle that was really definitive in terms of the legal issues because it was one of the first cases to test the, or it was the, the first case to test the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in relation to sacred lands. And... Um, we had spent months building up to mobilize for that. And at that time I was working with, you know, people in the ruckus society, for those of you all who don't know who they are, they're a direct action group that was formed after the 1999 uh, WTO IMF world bank resistance uprising in Seattle. And um, they were a direct action group that did trainings and um, also sort of parachuted in different activists as, you know, quote unquote allies to, supports environmental and social justice uh, frontline organizing and they are that organization is what for you know ultimately led to the formation of the indigenous people's power project or ip3 and so i was was working with all of these people and we had done a lot of outreach building up to the our case going to um san francisco so-called san francisco ohlone lands and uh, i remember we had um all these events planned. We had, you know, sunrise ceremonies. We had a caravan of over a um, hundred people from our lands, you know, elders. And we, we were at the time working with, you know, tribal leadership and spiritual leaders because we had a very broad-based coalition in environmental groups. And one of the things that you said to me, because we were frustrated, we were frustrated that we didn't get the kind of support. We were um, challenging a lot of these nonprofit, like big NGO or non, non-governmental organization groups, environmental groups, particularly to step up and support anti-colonial struggle to defend sacred lands. Because at the time it was just an emergent like issue, but it was becoming a trend. And so uh, I was remarking of the challenges and you, uh, I remember this very clearly, you stated to me that you were shocked and amazed how much support we had gotten. But our group was sort of frustrated because we didn't get what we felt like it should have been um, because one of the things from what I remember you said, and you probably remember this more uh, was is that indigenous people were completely invisibilized there and the issues weren't like quote unquote sexy, you know, or trendy on that level. And so, you know, the, the important part to me of these lessons, and this is what made me as well, very um, uh, concerned 
with the nonprofit industry and what deepened my um, sort of antagonism towards them was is that the way they used um, our organizing, like, because we were staunchly grassroots, we refused foundation funding, we refused to write grants because we saw exploitation. And we made that commitment saying that if we're here to protect our sacred lands, then we shouldn't be getting paid for it. This is a spiritual struggle. So it demands some kind of um, uh, sacrifice and discipline. Uh, and we're not here for reward. We don't want people to come for the wrong reasons just for a paycheck or with their hands out. We want to make sure people know that we're here because it's a principled um, matter that we're addressing on a spiritual level. And we were instructed, you know, uh, we were, we were counseled by our own spiritual practitioners to approach that issue in this way. And so um, that was a, a huge lesson <laughs> that I learned of how these nonprofit groups will co-opt issues if they're trendy, how then afterwards, after that court battle, um, we saw groups uh, that had offered almost no support who had actually shut the door on us pretty much or shut people out while we were planning events turn around and say that they had supported their uh, our effort in their newsletters and asked for people to donate to their organizations. And it was just so disingenuous and disrespectful that that was part of, you know, this, this whole abuse that we've seen. So I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the details of those experiences, but you just brought that up and it just reminded me looking at the Apache, you know, strongholds efforts with Oak Flat of what we went through back then. Absolutely. And it still continues to today. And so not only are indigenous peoples invisibilized on our own lands, especially here in California, especially with the uniqueness of tribes here within California, that we, um, there are 109 federally recognized tribes, but we have over 55 tribes that are considered NFR. They're non-federally recognized. We have disenfranchised tribal communities. We have disenrolled tribal families and peoples. We have state-recognized tribes. We have terminated tribes. And so it's really interesting that, you know, the response, um, when I talk about every day as a California Indigenous woman, every day is a fight for visibility. Every day is a fight against the erasure um, of, of us through, you know, what happened with gold, greed, and genocide um, efforts in, in the extermination of us as a people's. And so, um, yeah, so those organizations not only shut their doors on us, they told us, um, I remember they said, oh, well, we're in our strategic planning. We are having a retreat. We can't help you. We can't even offer our office space um, so that we could, you know, get any printing done. And and so, um, yeah, it was just really interesting to me that they had, you know, all of these resources available, that they had office space, that they, you know, it was within um, their reach, but they, you know, said, you know, it, it wasn't, um, you know, it just didn't fit at that time. And I was just like, well, if you're in your strategic planning phase, um, like, what does that mean for us? Like, this is the time, this is when we need this help. This is what, when we need the support. And I think it was definitely at that time. And, and so to, um, you know, just to reflect on that and to just see like, here we are now in, you know, in, in a time where indigenous 
people's struggles are sexy to an extent, that they are visible. Um, everyone's a water protector now, right? Like all of these organizations are claiming that they're doing frontline um, work with Indigenous peoples and communities. They're all claiming that they're grassroots when they have these multi-million dollar budgets. Um, and so so it's really just interesting to see um, how all of that is being navigated. And, and so I, I'm using California as an example because that parachuting is still taking place. Um, ruckus is still very much in existence. Um, from what I understand on occupied Ohlone lands, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they do. I know they had one of the largest camps at Standing Rock with just an outrageous amount of tech, like they had their own office in the middle of, you know, this ongoing uh, battle that was being waged. They were telling folks that they couldn't camp within their area because that was their training grounds. They had yurts set up. I mean, it was pretty obscene in terms of, you know, the camp and the setup that they had. And, and so, yeah, just kind of watching from, from the outside of that and just, um, watching how all of this is, has been navigated through the years. It really shows the exploitation that it's not only the resource extraction that we have to worry about, with um, non-Native peoples, but that it is through our own peoples and our, our own um, communities um, that, you know, will will take advantage of that and, and will make that effort as well. Um, it's funny that you bring up ruckus uh, because everything that you said about Standing Rock is absolutely true. And then some, we're seeing it today repeated by Indian Collective. But also, in addition to that, um, people, I don't know if people know this, but uh, Ruckus is actually currently, they're helicoptering in and, uh, well, like, what is it, parachuting in? <laughs> I don't know what they call it, but um, to the Thacker Pass issue right now, they're actually the ones that have been offering the quote-unquote direct action training for a lot of the people on the ground there. And being that our, um, due to our history, our people don't have um, a very strong presence as far as um, political education and as far as frontline experience. And so they and it's being largely ran by a lot of the um, orgs. And so they brought them in with no problem. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought these guys were shut down. But yeah, that, that was problematic when I saw them there. But I, I guess nobody else saw the problem. And this is the thing that I, I think a lot of people don't understand is the, the um, indigenous organizing circles are pretty small. We all know each other. We or we are related to each other. We've worked with each other throughout our histories. Um, and part of that is because we come from movement families or, you know, we cross paths a lot with the work that we do. And there are deep histories with a lot of the folks behind these, these entities that we know or we worked with in the past. A lot of times when we have these conversations, we individualize it. And this is where a lot of our problems come in is because we attach it to certain orgs or certain people or certain things that's a problem and that distracts away from that allows people to get defensive about, oh, well, that's my friend or, oh, that org helped this thing or that org isn't that bad. Or, you know, when it distracts away from the entire problem of it, which is the complex and it's not the or each org, it's not each person. I mean, yeah, it is, but at the same time, that's not what we're addressing here. And the fact is, is that people don't understand that. Like, um, the you brought up the military, the military-industrial complex, and it plays right into this and exactly into this because um, I, I, I have some family members that um, are actually active military, and they're pretty high-ranking. And uh, one of the things that they're trying to do is to learn the language of the um, places that they're going into and 
Well, let's not get it twisted. What they're going to do is colonize. They're going into these spaces to colonize it. And one of the things when you look back, when you read back on the reports um, from Tiger Swan about their reports back of um, their intel, they said that they could observe and they can survey a lot of the, the planes were constantly flying overhead 24 hours a day, helicopters, planes, everything. They were taking pictures all the time. And uh, But one of the things that they noted in their report back was that they could not infiltrate what they quote unquote called leadership meetings or meetings where, you know, the, the plays were getting called because that's what they were looking for. That's a structure they know. They don't know indigenous structures. And so they can't find what they don't know to, how to look for. Right. Well, that's why they depend on infiltrators. They depend on infiltrators to go in to target these certain things. But if we don't have those certain things, they can't really target it. Right. That is exactly what, scouts were used for back in the day because when you go into all these new places you don't have time to train people to learn the language learn the customs learn everything of that that's why they adopt um what are they scout um, scouts or like when they go into iraq they get somebody from iraq to come on their on the little team and and they um su not supervise but they like go and they tell them all the local customs and stuff if they're messing up or whatever the troops um they depend on that right and but they downplay it and so when they come into into movement spaces, especially indigenous movement spaces, I mean, there, it was no mistake that they um, that they in their internal documents addressed us like we're the jihad. They they called us jihadists because that's how they know how to deal with us because they know that they're coming into a culture that they don't understand, and so that's why they depend on scouts still to do that work for them, except for when they can't recruit scouts, when there isn't enough Heath Harmons or, you know, the guy that set up Red Farm, when there isn't enough of those that can get into the sensitive places, what, how else are they going to get that information? Nonprofits. Because when you have, if you've ever written a grant, you will understand that you have to, you know, all the paperwork and stuff and all the details that you have to provide in providing that, in applying for that grant. Even if you don't, if you, if your grant does not get chosen, if you don't get awarded, you're still giving them that information. So now they have all this information coming in for, to them from all these different spaces and all these different movements. And boom, now they now they don't really, you know, it's it's a substitute for the scouts. I mean, we're doing a good job as far as our security goes, but these nonprofits are are weak space right now. And um, I just I just really wanted to call that to attention. Like when we talk about nonprofits are scouts, it's not that it's name calling and it, it, we're describing the job that they're doing. And it's not it maybe it isn't um, intentionally done on their part. I mean, I was in the nonprofits for a long time and I didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't realize that, the, that they were milking me for this or that. Um, I didn't understand what being tokenized was when I was in it. Until I, and when I got out of it, I was like, damn, I got played. And I felt bad. I felt bad for a long time. I still feel bad about it. But at the same time, like, I didn't know. And um, so I, I go into, when we go into criticizing these nonprofits and stuff, it's like, I go into it with that because I know that they probably don't know. But I need them to know. We need them to know. And that's why we speak on this. And there's context for this. The Revolution Will Not Be Funded has an essay by a Madonna Thunderhawk uh, who was uh, part of the Women's Wall Red Nation, which has formed a connection with the American Indian Movement. 
and they did incredible work without a single foundation grant. Um, but her essay reminds us that um, their organizing was able to accomplish much, if not more, outside of the nonprofit system. And this is something key when we look at globally um, indigenous struggles who fight, who struggle, who have amazing resistance uh, and liberatory struggles that are ongoing without nonprofit support. This seems to be something very much, um, quote unquote, American. And I think the capitalist context is key. But uh, Morningstar, you want to talk about how AIM now in in California is becoming a nonprofit. All I can honestly do is laugh about it. And so here within California, in Northern California, there is um, an AIM chapter that was sanctioned by the Grand Governing Council, um, by the National um, AIM leadership. And this AIM group has formed um, a 501c3. They are a nonprofit. They are an official nonprofit within California where they are um, claiming that they're doing work on behalf of um, missing and murdered Indigenous peoples and the American Indian movement. And so um, just in terms of of the background, uh, I definitely personally took issue with it, felt like there were a number of, you know, I, I don't know what else to call them other than these newbie AIM activists that really feel like they have something to prove. And so, um, you know, for those of us that were raised in the movement, we understand that, you know, we understand the threats, we understand the surveillance, we understand, I mean, even current day, um, the organizing that I do with the Anti-Police Terror Project, I co-lead the Healing Justice Committee, it's all volunteer-led and run, and, you know, constantly um, tending to um, the needs of families that have been impacted by state violence. Um, and so, and even that, we've we witnessed the co-optation of that, right? Like, um, APTP are the folks that came up with um, defunding the police, uh, messaging and language, and, and we've seen how nonprofits now are are using that in in their LOIs, and you know, asking how we can have this you know safer world away from policing when they are very much a part of of the problem and the violence that's being uh, committed against um, communities of color. And so, yeah, to have have this nonprofit. Um, you know, formed and to have this leadership that absolutely no one that's actually been a part of AIM, um, none of them recognize. We don't recognize it in, in any form or fashion. Um, but just to, you know, see this call for donations, this call for support that they are this entity, it's um, it's absolutely disgusting. With my efforts with within um nonprofits and social services departments. Um, I felt like I was doing work that was necessary, which it was, but also um, I was being derailed from, I was being sucked in basically. And, and I totally lost my, my path. People don't understand a lot of times that a lot of natives actually don't understand. This is where the issue lies is that a lot of natives don't understand that our existence is anti-colonial, period. And it doesn't matter what we do, as long as we are working in our best interests, we are anti-colonial. So, and there are consequences for that. There's consequences for not being fully American and fully Americanized. 
um, for not making concessions, there are consequences for that. And that, and, and on the contrary, there are rewards for being colonial for being in line with the system. And that's what we're seeing now with these nonprofits and stuff. Like they're the ones that get funding. They're the ones that can come in and uh, like IP three and, and say they were at standing rock and stuff, but then none of them got arrested. <laughs> you didn't see any of them during time. Right. We're not writing to any of them in the fucking prisons. Right. Um, we need to understand that our existence has been criminalized. Because that is the basis of America. We can't help that, and we don't want to help that. Um, that's just our being. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't good people among us. I mean, I feel like we're the best people. <laughs> I'm biased, though, but hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, but at the same time, we need to understand that this is a real thing. It's a real um, – it has real consequences in life, in our lives, Um when we go to the, there needs to be a distinction, and I, I see this getting played out a lot. Um, a lot of people that are, are working and they don't understand that there's a difference between community organizing and frontline. When we say frontline, it doesn't mean that you are a community organizer that organizes an action. It means that you are resisting all colonial input. It means that you are sticking to the goal 100%. Um, as far as my personal life, um, the reason why I feel that this needs to be called out now, and it should have been called out a long time ago, but this, just like we talk about interge intergenerational trauma that has influenced us in our current day, like for instance, I come from the Duck Valley Shoshone Paiute Reservation, and um, back in the 70s, John Trudell came out there because he married uh, one of our relatives, and um she was doing really good work in the community and our, her dad actually happened to be the tribal, um, you know, the, our leader. And I've looked past, I've looked into the, the dossiers and, um, a lot of, she was, they were actually being targeted and John Trudeau was, was linked in through aim. And so it was a major threat because the fact that, um, our tribe actually started going more autonomous. Our tribe was, moving away from the BIA, we were, we were thinking about kicking the BIA out and going back to our traditional structures. And, and it was in really real motion. And that was a huge threat to the government. And so, um, when, when we talk about Tina Manning and, um, the fire that happened, it was a very real thing and it influenced a whole generation after that. Like when I came around, it was a couple years later after the fire. And, but, since then, there hasn't been any real, like, organizing there because our community was so impacted by that. We have a small community. And, um, you know, we, we laid dormant for a little while just because we were recovering. But now we see with Thacker Pass coming in, and now we have no organizers. We have nobody on the ground there that are frontliners because we spent a whole you know, we took the time that we needed to to heal, but now it's left us unprepared for this current battle. And this is why it's important to recognize all these impacts on how on our generational timelines. So when now when IP3 is coming in and exerting themselves, it's like they're exerting themselves on nations. They know there's a space there for them. 
they know that we don't have any frontliners because our families were busy dealing with our traumas from the government. And we were raised, um, I remember when I first started going into um, community organizing and, and I remember my mom telling me about the fire and my grandma telling me about the fire and how um, she used to babysit those kids and just watching her cry and it was just, it was really impactful. So when we talk about frontlining and when we talk about what it means and the, and the power that it has, there's weight behind it. It's a real thing. It's a powerful thing. And when we're frontlining, there's real risk to it. And that's, this is what these uh, nonprofits and these academics don't understand because they don't face it. They're bought into the system already, so they don't face the same consequences that we do. Because they don't carry the same power that we do. So understand that there's a difference between community organizing and frontlining. And we need to go back to frontlining. That's where we make the difference. Otherwise, we're just buying into that. I think you bring up a very provocative point regarding nonprofits and frontlines. And if a nonprofit can be frontliner, um, I think part of the challenging dynamic is, is that they front. They can buy their way onto the frontliner. So it's fronting, not frontlining. Um, and artificially create, you know, these sort of theatrical protests that appear radical or challenging, you know, the root causes on a deeper level rather than just reforms and replicating the systems that we're fighting in which they're benefiting from. Uh, and this is a challenge because there are certain dynamics that are very misleading, like just the language that's used, something as simple as a collective, like Indian collective, for example, because you can't be a collective if you have a hierarchical organization with a president CEO that are paying themselves um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for their staff every year. There's something extraordinarily misleading about that. And this is the big challenge about how misleading these groups can be, how artificial their postures can be, uh, because at the end of the day, they're cashing in. And as Remy has said in the past, it's is it cash back or is it land back? Um, because in these terms, it doesn't there doesn't seem to be much difference. And this is you know to me something we've talked about in, in other terms, and I think in another show we'll bring up about the pacification and the sort of like you know not a little bit more about nonviolent direct action and so forth as far as um, the constraints of these strategies from nonprofits and what they project and what they then. Um, create the infrastructure that becomes replicated down the line for what, what is viable resistance and struggle. But the, uh, the issue is, is that this is really missionizing. I mean, it, we take a step back and look at, you know, a global context. I, I don't think there's anywhere else in the, in the world um, that operates the same way that nonprofits do within the U.S. context. But when you look at the way nonprofits are exported, you know, they're, they're missionizing projects um, throughout the world. I think we can see a dynamic that is really dangerous and take that perspective and look back at what's happening as an exceptional model of this gross uh, expression of capitalism that is manipulating social and ecological um, movements for justice. And to me, this is really a big key part of what 
really has to be addressed when we're talking about these nonprofits, this this operating environment, the context of these systems of oppression, because this is a facade. This is really a a gross way of maintaining capitalism. I mean, look at Indian collectives, the, the their primary board member and milkman for the philanthropic world who wrote this book, Decolonizing Wealth, which Indian Collective uses as a st- structure for their whole uh, strategy. Um, they use the term anti-capitalism, yet at the end of the day, they're more interested and invested in maintaining capitalism. I mean, you can't talk about, quote unquote, money is medicine and still use that term anti-capitalism. You can't take money from billionaire capitalist Jeff Bezos, which ultimately you know is just a tax shelter for him to keep his wealth and feel good about using that term anti-capitalism considering how anti-worker, how destructive for the environment and the climate uh, Jeff Bezos is. So taking 10 million is nothing in relation to the overall harm that he represents. And that is what is extraordinarily dangerous is that these groups are so misleading. This whole nonprofit industry is so misleading that they're tending to and preserving these systems of oppression and ultimately set up to work against, uh, to control, to dominate, to undermine indigenous resistance. The claiming of money as medicine, of like we all carry our own medicine, and so, and so recognizing that money um, is is their medicine, and so I just was really put off by that because I think that, you know, we live in such an, an individualistic, you know, society of teaching us that like, how is it that somebody could come to, to understand, you know, that, um, the representation of wealth and capitalism would, would be their medicine. Like it's poison. It's, it's poison within our communities. Um, and so, you know, and just thinking of, how that affects us collectively, um, as, you know, within our communities, you know, that that's being touted as, you know, as, as even a tool of decolonization, that's not decolonization at all. That is upholding white supremacy. That's upholding capitalism. Um, that's upholding colonialism. Like that's not in any way, any process of decolonization. I feel like, I feel like you brought up a really Good point. And the fact that you brought up Indian Collective as, you know, quote unquote collective, why lie? Why, why say they're, why, why would they say they're a collective if they're not a collective? What, what's a, what, what do they get from that? And when you ask that, you'll see. There's, there's no point in them claiming to be a collective if they're not, right? Unless, of course, they were trying to present themselves as something that they're not. Because they're clearly not, and we're, I mean, they got to know that we're smart enough to know that. So, I mean, that those are the points that I, I touch on that I, I see that it's it's um, purposeful. And that's the part that we got to realize and be like, hey, there there are snakes in the grass. We, we can't deny that. And um, we don't like it. We don't like it at all. A lot of people think that we like to, to speak out about this because it's some personal shit, but like, really... No, we don't get anything from this. We are only speaking out in order to, because we're tired of being held back as a people by our own people. And that that's the point of it. 
them and the agents of empire. I, I think that Klee really hit on a great analogy, which is that, that these are missionization projects. If you're outside of the North America, the fact that, that nonprofits, which are NGOs abroad, are missionary projects is totally clear. Here, because you know the, the heart of, of capital, if you will, and and this overlapping complex colonialism in which we are existing, it's muddied the water so much that a lot of people can't recognize what is right in front of them, and which is just these organizations that are selling you democracy. And the fact of the matter is, and and you know a, a colonized people cannot be you cannot dictate terms to a colonized people in terms of how they struggle for their own liberation and, and resistance. Whatever terms that they are resisting in is a legitimate form of, of resistance. And that's exactly what the nonprofit organizations do. They're, they've become missionaries for a, a project around cooper <laughs> cooperative, and transformative forms of democracy. That's what it really wants you to do, participate in the American democratic project and is some kind of utopian idea. The front line, the, the front line that, that Bearcat spoke of requires two key things. One, a time commitment. And two, it actually is a commitment of, of risk. The risk is, and the, you know, people can criticize someone like AIM all they want, or, or a myriad of other organizations and people that have done indigenous struggle, but the fact of the matter is, they've stuck around and gotten killed, and that's that is a reality that indigenous people face here in this country. Is that that's that that is the level of risk a nonprofit can only parachute in and then can cut bait whenever it wants and dip out because they don't risk anything on the ground. The only thing that they're risking is a paycheck. And they're not even risking that because there's always another government grant, another private fund to fund them and sell democracy yet again in another form. And it isn't even a democracy that we as Native people embrace. It's not like, it's not the form that, you know, the Six Nations were using or, or, you know, um, the Mexica we're using. No, it's a totally different thing that is meant to to maintain and impose the settler colonial state. I like what you said. It's meant to replicate it, though. They they want to replicate our systems because our systems are functional, but also because they're scared. They're scared of us, and they they know that they have to pacify us, and that's why they spend so much time and money and energy trying to to get us to replicate it for that for them because they know that we vouch. Yeah, it's absolutely exploitation, whether it's native folks as the face of it or, you know, the backing of um, you know, these larger uh, you know, white led NGOs. And so I think that that's you know, that's, that's where we're at and, and we just have to be willing to address it. I've been blacklisted plenty, especially here in the Bay Area, especially within Northern California of, um, of like, don't hire her, don't work with her. She's going to 
cause trouble, <laughs> which I am. Like, I don't want any sort of, you know, I don't want to ever feel like I'm in a position. I don't put myself in the position of feeling like I need to censor myself in any way. My response uh, to the our, our, the critics that are going to criticize us is simple. Those tactics you're employing don't even work for them. Why would they work for us when we're even more marginalized more outside of the uh, of the mainstream than anyone else it doesn't work it, it, it because inevitably there's so many compromises that have to be made that you're now no longer fighting for what you're originally were fighting for you're fighting for something else entirely and again to maintain the status quo but the entire state apparatus the settler colonial apparatus is set up to disempower everyone from cha- challenging it including its own agents because it only wants to select few at the top. You remember those people that like popped up under uh, uh, Occupy called the 1%, you know? And they've been around for quite a while. And we're, we're, it, it's like a, um, it's all a mind game that we're in constant, have to be in constant state of vigilance against in order to combat it. And then also, combating the amnesia and that's this is also why and we've discussed this on you know outside of shows in person you know and and kind of peer discussions and even on shows is kind of the the current temperament that is of the moment which is very reactionary you're going to actually attack anything and everything that's suggested that doesn't seem to fit into someone's pre- predetermined notion of what struggle is and then immediately try to categorize as good, you know, this is a good activist versus a bad activist, which is a good person versus a bad person based on what they say or, you know, not agreeing to be part of someone's fan club. And the reality is none of that shit matters. What matters is, is what we're doing working. If it's not working and achieving our, our, our goals and intentions and and inevitably our liberation, then why the fuck are we doing it? You know, it's time to retire that shit, get it out of the fucking way and move on to better things and better tactics. And and I totally agree with that. Like if 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 some of our, our folks can burn down churches, they can burn down a nonprofit or two. Yeah, I would add um that uh there's a reason Jeff Bezos and his Earth Fund gave, you know, felt that it was appropriate or considered offering 10 or $12 million to Indian, you know, a group like Indian Collective. And apparently they offered, they gave $10 million to the Navajo COVID-19 Family Relief Fund, which I actually was part of when it started. Uh, and they had a massive, successful uh, effort with GoFundMe. It was crowdfunded and it was a powerful community effort initially. I was part of that organizing and I walked away from it. Actually, quite a few organizers walked away from it when they started professionalizing and turning the the attitude of the organizing, the logic of it was, you know, thinking about, well, this is a um, an, eco- an economic problem and there needs to be an economic solution. So the issue is, is that, you know, if we're not empowering our communities on our terms, then what are we doing? And when it comes down to the reason that Bezos can give these groups funding is because they're not a threat to what he 
has built his power from. They're not a threat to his power. Um, and so when it comes down to, uh, you know, this issue of nonprofits, we're really talking about capitalism and this sort of, you know, accelerated capitalism that we name neoliberalism, which is just globalized cap- capitalism and, you know, globalized unrestricted markets and this sort of logic of um, uh, commodification of all existence, which is inherently extractive. And the way that folks are coming about this, using this language, using this jargon, like, you know, co-opting, you know, things to exploit and make a profit off of it is this, the situation is, is that, you know, if, if capitalism and colonialism are what got us into this mess, they're not what are, you know, the logic of colonialism and capitalism and, and, and the actions that we take, you know, aren't to, to end those systems aren't going to be through what got us into this mess. The only proposition that makes sense to addressing cap the question of capitalism and colonialism is its total abolition if we are talking about land back, and we really mean it. If we're talking about indi- indigenous liberation and autonomy, and we really mean it. I'd like to turn the conversation to some of the pushback that we hear in our critiques of the nonprofit industrial complex, um, they've been, well, these are good people working in these orgs, so they're not all bad. Um, poor folks need jobs. And in some communities, the nonprofit industrial complex provides that infrastructure. There are more pressing issues to worry about than nonprofits. And specifically regarding critiques of the indigenous nonprofit industrial complex, well, if the nonprofit is 100% native run, isn't that better? So, what are y'all's responses to these concerns? Personally, I got a lot of feedback after you posted the um, the uh, text on on the nonprofit, the industrial in, indigenous nonprofit industrial complex, and um, a lot of the people that you know that are supposedly radical and supposedly this and that, you know, they quietly came to me and were like, "Oh, well, you guys don't really mean this, or you guys don't really mean that." No, that's exactly what the fuck we mean. That's exactly what we mean. And I know that you're uncomfortable with that, and that's okay. But we still need to talk about it. We don't lead with our resume for a reason. Like we could if we wanted to, but that's not what we do because that's not what we're here for. And that's not the not what we're building. And it doesn't have any use for us right now because honestly, we're already we already the people that are in know. The people that have been here for a long time know. The people that are on the ground and are actively doing this work know. And so and and there's also some security culture that goes into that too. So it seems variations on a theme, stuff we've are, I've heard before in one formation or another. Um, I mean, if we if so, we don't just like come across as just like attacking and haters because that's exactly how we get painted into a corner again and again and again and again. You know, there's very key things that are occurring that people aren't acknowledging. Like there's generational shift and drift. Um, you know, people in the, in this in in this podcast, for example, and and we have a much larger extended kind of network of people, have been doing in one form or another indigenous organizing, radical indigenous organizing, since the '90s. You know, and <clears throat> we didn't just come into being after Standing Rock, and um, more importantly, we didn't need a Standing Rock in order to get involved 
there were other circumstances that got us involved. And not everyone was a movement family. It was circumstances can create them too. Uh, and I think that what the nonprofit people want to do is for one, I mean, there's a, there's a whole tier of problems because these are subjects created by the circumstances of colonialism that they individually come from. So it could be people that just learn their activism and their identity in college. Um, and then their tactics and strategies and understanding of everything came from a book. It doesn't come from the field. Or it's they do it out of economic interest or do-goodery, right? They, I, I just want to do a good thing. But fundamentally, they misunderstand it. Uh, one of the key things that nonprofits do, as well as government, is they want civil struggle. Civil struggle in the sense of it being um, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, civility politics. You know, where where we're all polite in our impoliteness. And we're going to get along in the end and we can agree to disagree. No, you don't have to agree to disagree. Sometimes disagreements are absolute and that because they're related to conditions that have to be destroyed and dismantled. It has nothing to do with whether I agree with them or disagree with them. It's, it's, an, it's an, an active form of oppression. And that's the same thing you know, that, that, that we're involved as a people are involved with is we're trying to prevent our own extinction against a, a system that has a bunch of agents, some of which that look like us and talk like us, that want to murder us by turning us into something we're not, either by destroying our spirit, our spirituality and essence, our cultural essence, our foundations, and even literally destroying the land we live on to make it unlivable. And if there's any, you know, illusions that especially an, uh, an indigenous person has about the circumstances we're under, they need only look at, at, you know, climate change because the evidence of where the system has taken us and where, where and it's affecting the entire world is pretty damn obvious. Also is the form of artificial scarcity in the sense that like there shouldn't be populations that are starving when you know, just because the only product that an entire country can produce is, is oil, let's say, or or rubber, or what have you. And so what we're seeing the nonprofits do is grind us down into ever more compliant versions of or mockery versions of ourselves. Not even tokens. We're like we're 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 hollowed out. And then just eventually going to be put on a shelf somewhere as a, as a has-been thing. We're, ex, we're extinct in all but name. And I think that that's the thing that consistently gets forgotten and has to be thrown in people's faces again and again and again and again. And I know that, <laughs> I know that some of my peers, as it were, we've, we've grown a little bit more rude over the years in terms of calling shit out exactly as it is and putting people on blast in a moment. Because in my case, for example, this is a, a, a tactical and strategic thing. It's one of those things that you should do in a meeting. Don't ever let, if you have a, a these type of figures that are going to, you know, try and redirect things or route, route everything through their nonprofit or whatever, do never, ever, ever let them pontificate. 
interrupt them on the spot. Those of you that are fans of the Black Panther, bark at them. You know, like you got it. You have to under undermine what they're doing before they start getting their shit off the ground, because in it, inevitably in the public space is the most powerful place to be because everything is evident and self-evident as long as you make it that way, transparent. And, and if you can't do that, what happens is you end up having a, a group of mewling people that are actually actively conspiring and manipulating behind the scenes to undermine what's going on in front of you. And what they're doing is actually getting agreement of the people there. I mean, uh, oh, I could go into, I'm not going to go into the tactical stuff, but I'm sure that anyone that has been doing organizing and sitting through meetings, there are scenarios and, and archetypes of people that they would recognize because they're so common and you can, and they literally use the exact same words as one another and they've never met one another, you know, and, and you'll, you'll get what I'm going at if you see it. It's important for listeners to understand that there is this element of pacification that has been constructed with the nonprofit industry or these these capitalist foundations and the state to control movements. And one of the best examples is in the in the in the 80s, like up until the 80s, uh, a lot of um, uh, interpersonal violence uh, organizing or domestic violence organizing, gender-based violence organizing was. Um, addressing systemic issues. Uh, it was a very feminist um, approach to addressing heteropatriarchy at the time. And uh, what had happened was we saw a very intentional uh, shift in funding that was directed towards service-based organizing away from the political organizing, the, the, the organizing that was addressing root causes and politicizing and empowering communities. And so what that did is it actually created over a decade, and it was a, actually a pretty quick shift of denuding or declawing, I should say, um, of declawing the uh, radical organizing that was happening to address the ways that interpersonal violence is connected to systemic um, or structural violence and embedded in um, the U.S. settler colonial heteropatriarchal project. Uh, and so um, that now has a resounding impact today. Uh, and I think that that's a, a great example of how manipulative the nonprofit industrial complex uh, is and how it can be manipulated um, for the interests of maintaining uh, the dominant social order and the wealth of capitalists and the power of uh, settler colonizers. Um, so I, I'd recommend that hopefully we can – I know we do this pretty much every show. We're like, oh, we need to fucking bookmark that, you know, have a deeper conversation ar around around this. Um which I think is important. And, and I wanted to just share just for, um, I don't know if it's disclosure, but just so people know, I'm a direct action trainer as well. Um, I actually was uh, uh, at the um, preliminary meeting or the retreat uh, that happened uh, outside of so-called Denver, Colorado, many, many years ago. I mean, this is over, a, I don't know how long ago, um, uh, that was hosted by the Ruckus Society and some of the indigenous folks that were part of it at the time that led to the creation of the Indigenous People's Power Project. Uh, so I, we know all these folks. We've worked with these folks. Um, and it, inevitably, we've had some uh, disagreements or conflict with 
the way that folks are approaching these issues. And it comes down to why, why we're there. You know, I've never been there for a paycheck. That's the discipline that my family has instilled in me. And I feel is um, something unreconcilable with my, my, my spiritual understandings of the work that we're doing, you know, because this is a, a, a spiritual war as well. Um, and I always come, at, come at it from that frame. Let me chime in something there too. Uh, I'm also direct action organizer, though it's been a while. But there's something we're leaving out of the conversation, which which is that's not all we are, but that is all that the nonprofit industrial complex and the ally industrial complex that are doing these kind of trainings is selling. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, ha- have learned and and or taught self defense, and. In, in the, so it isn't, we don't just know nonviolence, put it that Beyond way. Beyond that, we're, we, we've been taught community defense. Exactly. And and that is like, the big thing is that, is a, it's like, we're that they intentionally blind you to not just half, but a full spectrum of strategies and tactics and ways of self-liberation and self-organizing that has nothing to do with what they're doing. And and is and in men, and in many ways is opposed to what they're doing, and and those are actually our legacies. It isn't these corporate models at all that are being imposed upon us and sold to us as if they're the the optimal solution. Yeah, there's a a myth of the movements that is being dictated and shoved down the throats of young organizers, particularly in the front lines, who go through these trainings, and that myth is one that. Um, it uh, colonizes the militant imagination of indigenous people. And one recent example is the Department of Interior occupation that happened that was, you know, when we're talking about fronts and front lines, even though we had frontline frontliners there in that occupation, you know, I, I thought that was a, a I won't, I won't um, criticize too much because I, I wasn't there, but the moment somebody starts comparing that action to the uh, occupation that AIM did in the 70s of the Department of Interior, I, I stop and I, you know, question if they have historical movement amnesia because that occupation was extraordinarily different. But I think they bear comparing because the AIM occupation uh, started because of a breakdown of negotiations in a meeting after the Trail of Broken Treaties that ended with, you know, 500 or so indigenous folks bringing their grievances, addressing treaty issues and making proposals for, you know, negotiations with Department of Interior and Department of Interior basically being non-responsive in their face. And so immediately they just, you know, spontaneously took over the building for, what, over four days or so. Um, they had prepared Molotov cocktails. They burned a whole bunch of documents. They liberated documents and brought them back to their 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 communities. I did a lot of investigation with those documents as well. And so that action by AIM was a completely different thing than a soft occupation of the Department of Interior's lobby over climate justice issues and the role that the Bureau of Indian Affairs has with regard to indigenous lands. It's the same sort of impetus, but different results and different tactics, which is a very particular commentary on our tactics today. Because I guarantee that at some point, that photo op 
those photos are being used to cash in to make sure that funders, you know, get that proof, that evidence that something, some activity is happening. Uh, and this is, you know, part of the reason why in the past I've said that one of the greatest threats to indigenous organizing contemporarily are not the corporations that were actually fighting uh, to prevent resource extraction, colonization, but actually these capitalist enterprises, these nonprofit corporations that, you know, some of them being the big green ones like Sierra Club, 350.org and other ones in the past have come in to orchestrated these, orchestrate these conflicts and present their strategies on their terms with an agenda that does not consider the long-term impacts and implications for our communities. And ultimately they reinforce um, the settler colonial social order. And so for me, you know, I've seen this firsthand. I've experienced this 30 years of organizing or so. Um, these organizations come and go and profiteer that they are super exploitive and extractive, that they really colonize, as I mentioned, the imaginations of young people and professionalize organizing in a way that is so extraordinarily detrimental and strips our communities of their power, their autonomy, and reorients the focus of where our attacks should be, which um, we are obviously articulating that it should be at the root causes. I mean, this is part of the reason I, I have a hard time, even as a direct action organizer, um, you know, pushing for direct action campaigns these days, because a lot of it just amounts to aggressive lobbying, um, comparing AIMS actions in the 70s. And of course, as we mentioned, AIMS problematic to an occupation of Iberian affairs. Today, we see huge differences in where we're at strategically, where we're at in choosing our tactics. Um, and there's a difference between negotiating and there's a difference between begging. And I think that's what we need to reflect and interrogate and criticize because these organizations cash in and then they cash out. And where are they to be found? Our struggles still continue and somebody profits, somebody makes money off of it. And this is what that threat is. When it comes down to it, they're not challenging the state. They're looking at building a career, building themselves up. And we see a lot of these nonprofit corporations, and I've seen them come and go. I've seen people cash checks, massive checks off the suffering of our people, and they built their organizational capacities. They've come and gone. And what, what, what do our communities have to show for it? You know, small campaigns that have short-term gains. And then we have organizations such as Indian Collective who have a nonprofit and for-profit enterprise where ultimately the underlying uh, strategies reinforce capitalism. So what are the long-term impacts and effects, the outcomes? These are the questions that are necessary that we have to ask, especially when so much is at stake. I'm going to, I'm going to bring in a little 
a little Malcolm X into this. Malcolm X said he used to criticize the civil rights movement talking about a sit-down philosophy, criticizing the notion of the sit-in. My view on the blockade is really simple because the best-case scenario that they're trying to sell to you is either militant posturing or the blockade. A blockade doesn't need people in order to be achieved. If something doesn't need people in order to be achieved, maybe that's not a tactic that is you know, at the top of the, at the top of the hill. And it also like totally erases the, not just the diversity of tactics, but astral history, like something called monkey wrenching, for example, which is you all better would know as sabotage. (laughs) And that's, there's a long tradition to that. You know, it isn't all about, you know, uh, some kind of adventuristic, you know, romanticized notion of, you know, going down, going down in, in a, in, in a blaze of gunfire or some nonsense. No, is a, there's a wide range of stuff that took place. Simultaneously, another thing that, that is no, never talked about when we talk about not just the traditional movement, but even the movement today, is the tactic of intimidation and coercion. You think the state's the only one that does coercion? No. The only problem is we don't exactly talk about it because when you use mafia tactics against a nonprofit board... <laughs> They tend to call cops on you if they can. But this shit happens and it needs to fucking happen. You know, everything from from break-ins and theft to monkey wrench, you name it. And yeah, these are these are all actually crimes. But guess what? They actually take place because the barriers are recognized as we can't achieve X, Y, or Z unless A, B, and C are done. And it just that's the how it has to go down. And there's some there's people that don't talk, but that one thing that they will never do, they may not talk to you about specifics, but the one thing they'll never do is they won't lie to you about the actual full scope and range of things that go on in the actual movement itself or in the decades upon decades, actually, in our case, hundreds of years of resistance and the variety and forms of resistance that, that takes place. And but a nonprofit by by in its own intention is a monopoly that is that it, it, on on your tactics and decision making and strategies and trying to sell you a line that is very narrow in scope and and then at the same time become making you dependent upon what they're doing and there's ways around that that all of us know and yeah there's also risk in that <laughs> But there's never not been a risk in being an indigenous person, you know, since 1492 to the present. This is why I love the Indigenous People's Day of Rage, because I feel like, I mean, the Americans get their holidays and, and the nonprofits get their their days of whatever they do, the awareness days or whatever the fuck they do. And 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 us, we don't get nothing like because we can't ever say what we do. We do what we do. And that's that. And a lot of the shit we do may or may not be able to be publicized or legal. And so I feel like indigenous day of rage is important for that reason. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. How many how many times have you have we been policed for stepping off the sidewalk, <laughs> right? By a nonprofit um movement police. How many times have we been, you know, said, oh, you know Stay behind the table. You gotta you gotta march in circles. How many times, you know, have they controlled the megaphone, you know, and not shared it? 
um, amidst the people? How many times have they, you know, cashed in on these movements and folks not realized what they are benefiting and profiteering from? Uh, and that, you know, dynamic is key to understand really what's happening here um, with what the nonprofit industrial complex, rec- you know, represents and why it needs to be abolished. Um, so in closing for the show, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, um, but really wanted to just ask if y'all have any tips for organizing outside of the nonprofit industrial complex or maybe examples of different methodologies um, that y'all engage in or that you know about that would be inspirational to folks. So I'm curious as to what y'all's you know, uh, recommendations for organizing uh, in spite of, outside of, or against the nonprofit industrial complexes. Sure. Yeah. I've always, I mean, we've always organized outside of the NPIC and, um, you know, that's some of my, I feel like my most, of course, important and most dedicated, um, organizing, you know, that, um, has been, you know, has not only been fruitful, um, but has been healing, has been long lasting, all of it. I had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the volunteer organizing that I'm really committed to at this time is through the anti-police terror project, um, Sacramento, where I co-lead the healing justice committee, where we are directly able to serve families that have been impacted by state violence, um, and police terrorism. And so, you know, that's work where we are able to, to support the families directly, where it's all volunteer led. Um, we're able to offer jail support. We're able to offer mutual aid, the MH first, um, project that, um, you know, has really centered around mental health first and, you know, um, not to involve any, any sort of, um, systems, you know, and, and being able to address um, crisis needs uh, by our own folks that are, are trained within our community. And so um, here on a Friday night, that's, you know, generally what we're doing. We're taking shifts with that and, you know, able to um, to have a um, both a text and a call line where folks are able to reach out and in the, the past uh, two to three years of, of the launch of this project. Um, it's been very successful, especially with COVID. And so, um, you know, it is Black-led organizing. Um, it is absolutely inclusive of folks of color, um, of Indigenous folks, of recognizing, like, we need to have these difficult conversations. We need to figure out what it is to meet to be in solidarity with one another. We even need to have the conversations about like, we don't have to actually like each other in order to want each other to, um, to be liberated and to be free. Like, I think that we get, you know, caught sometimes within these activist spaces of thinking that we all need to be best friends with one another. And and that's not the case at all that we, you know, we can have our differences. We can put our differences aside. We don't even have to, um, you know, there doesn't have to be any sort of, of mutual friendship or, or anything like that. But, you know, we do want to see one another free and we do want to see one another safe from harm and violence. Keep it simple. And in the sense that if it ain't a jack move, it's a whack move because everything should be you should be doing involving nonprofits should either be undermining them 
or jacking them. You know, so the tips that I have for organizing outside the nonprofit industrial complex are, you know, and this is a question that I've had um, for years. It's part of the reason that I helped to start um, the Tullahoan Info Shop, you know, as an anti-capitalist project that was intentionally um, antagonistic towards the nonprofit industry. We we said we're not going to get any funding from the nonprofit industry or foundations. We're only going to be um, community supported. That's it. Because if the community wants us to exist, it'll exist. If they don't want us to and we don't have the support or material resources that we need, then we don't need to fight for this to be an institution. That's a colonial logic. You know, we're not trying to institutionalize something that doesn't work for our communities, <laughs> um, for our peoples. Uh, then it'll just cycle out. Maybe we'll compost it and try something else. But, you know, the need for uh, uh, conflict, what we call conflict infrastructure, and to establish these spaces and to hold on to them and make them meaningful is important. If it was just something that was, you know, a nonprofit threw money at um, and it just was propped up in the community, it would be artificial. But, you know, the the way that we organize with unsheltered relatives, I've had unsheltered relatives give me their, their fucking EBT cards to go um, get uh, groceries so we can um, provide food for our folks and cook a meal to share with the rest of the folks. Like that's the kind of organizing that we fucking need to build, not just throwing money at a problem and thinking that's what the, is going to be the solution to make it go away. Um, if it's not from the ground up, if it's not addressing root causes of these issues, um, then, you know, we have to really question and interrogate what its purpose is. Um, so I think there's amazing creative resourceful actions that we need to look at and study, um, outside of the U S the so-called U S context. Um, but it's also happening in squats. It's happening in incredibly powerful autonomous organizing, uh, and it's not just some crusty, you know, vegan anarcho punks, uh, you know, doing doing this shit. You know, it's pow- the powerful ways that mutual aid is not a transactional, you know, relationship. It's it's one of reciprocity. It's one of restoring our ancestral ways outside of these matrix of economic exploitation that we call capitalism. It's outside of the colonial logic of extraction and expecting something and, and privatizing everything, commodifying, you know, every, everything and taking it for whatever we want for our own benefit and extracting things to benefit ourselves um, because of this, you know, sort of like weird hyper-individualistic um, reward system that uh, we, we exist and try to survive and navigate in. You know, um, I, I imagine people reacting to the show and, and thinking that we're just calling for everybody to be volunteer, uh, sacrificial um, militants, you know, that we should all be martyrs. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, knock anybody for trying to figure out how to survive um, in and outside of the nonprofit industry, because I think there's ways we can use it to some degree as far as limited fiscal sponsors. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're, if you're really looking at these issues and want to, you know, understand what the metrics are, I think to understand what we're fucking doing and what we're working towards is, you know, just ask yourself, are, am I building with this choice that I'm making, am I building community power or am I building the, 
the capacity of this organization uh, and reinforcing a hierarchical structure and um, profit profiting and you know in some ways and that can it doesn't mean just financially profiting it could be um, the power accumulation social or you know clout and so forth and I think it's complicated um, but there's powerful creative ways that people our ancestors you know less than a hundred years ago um, even less than fifty years ago. Um, or even today, like I have relatives live out on the land, resisting the, the, the you know, forced relocation, resisting all the U.S. laws. They don't give a fuck about nonprofits, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, and, like, I, I feel like and, and I feel when they, what you're saying. And when they come in, they're concerned that these are people who might have ulterior motives and agendas. And the reality is, is they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, they do. And um, I would definitely be ready and willing to back the people that are in shelter that are literally are the ones that they say that they cheerlead for before I worry about hurt feelings for people that work for NGOs. I don't give a fuck about the feelings of NGOs. NGOs don't have feelings. They're corporations. So I, I, that's what I, I would have to say. But to close this up, the, the thing I want to leave people with from this this episode is to realize, especially, I'm, I'm going to speak to the frontliners. I want you guys to realize that it is all about benefits and rewards. You have to limit everything that they benefit and everything that they can reward and watch both of those things. And that means going off paper and that means, you know, denying yourself your, your own personal wants and needs. That's, I mean, most of us understand that that's part of it. Um, just being indigenous people in our spiritual ways, but also limit the ways that they reward you because those are those things that they 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 prey on to um, control us. Those are methods of control. So if you work for a nonprofit, I mean, you're definitely targeted number one. Um, and then watch for the people around you who what are they um, punished and rewarded with? What are what are their their pulls? What are their triggers? Because those are the things they're going to tell you who you can trust and who you cannot trust. And um, that that's who I'm worried about. Because I know that our our, um, our relatives have been working hard to build a strong network of people that can be trusted and cannot be trusted. And um, it's gonna it's really coming into play. It's going to determine a lot about our future. And not only our future, but, you know, the future generations. That, that's really what we're here for. Sure. I'd just like to go back to the question when you were asking, um, you know, what can be done like what, what are the solutions out there? And so just thinking, what are our solutions? What is it that we're working towards? What is it that, you know, in all of our efforts of individual and collective healing, like what is, you know, the larger goal out there? Because there's always going to be that exploitation. There's always going to be, um, you know, that, that extraction um, of indigenous peoples and of our, our communities. And so thinking of, you know, what, what, like what have been the ways that we've been able to survive. And so I think that, you know, supporting indigenous frontline defenders, supporting the grassroots efforts, you know, ensuring that when folks want to support that, um, you know, that we're very clear in the ways that folks can support, um, and, that, you know, that that effort has to be made in terms of co-optation. Like I was even thinking about that on, on the way home of, you know, the 
defend the sacred and protect the sacred, um, you know, how that went from, you know, these, these slogans and hashtags in a sense that these are nonprofit entities that are, you know, capitalizing on, you know, on, on our ongoing, um, struggles. Yeah. It becomes a dynamic where it feels like, you know, sacred land defense and this whole idea of land back, you know, as an enterprise is more just like the game of monopoly, but with native people playing, you know, to try to economically or use the economic strategy and capitalism as a way to try to beat colonizers at their own game. In terms of abolishing the industry, that that's an abolition of capitalism, that's an abolition of white supremacy, that's an abolition. I mean, we see these campaigns, right? We see this land back campaign now where, you know, it's, been made comfortable for white folks to say, like, you don't actually mean land back. Like, we're just using this as a slogan. We're just using this as messaging where we're like, no, we actually do mean land back. We actually do mean ancestors back. We actually do mean water back. Um, and that can make folks, you know, very uncomfortable at, you know, um, within these spaces because they think that offering a land acknowledgement, that's a whole other conversation, right? That offering a land acknowledgement is good enough for them. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, investing in leadership, um, in investing in grassroots leadership, um, as I mentioned, I organized with Anti-Police Terror Project, um, you know, with understanding that it is this state violence that is targeted towards, um, towards Black, Brown, Indigenous folks. Um, and so that's really where I focused a lot of my time and energy. Um, as of lately, I, I think that, you know, I've definitely become um, pretty disheartened with with Native nonprofits, with Native organizing. It was to a point where they, they do dangle this little carrot in front of you and say like, hey, come do our organizing for us. Or, you know, can we write you into this? And, um, and I know that any paid organizing that I've gotten is pennies um, compared to what they've, you know, what they've written in. Any organizing that I've done that I received a minuscule amount, um, you know, there's been hours and hours of, of unpaid labor that has gone um, along with that. And so, um, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I'll just say that, you know, I have been offered executive director positions. I have been offered to be a part of a number of different organizations to make them look good. And, um, and I just refuse flat out to, to be a part of it. I refuse to co-sign any of what's taking place with that. All right. As we wrap up this conversation, which it feels like there's no end because I think for some of us, it's been our, our almost life's experience in a lot of these organizational spaces where it's been extremely frustrating and the the critiques are out there. This isn't a new conversation. This is an old conversation and that's part of the reason it feels really frustrating, but we have to constantly sort of revisit it um, every few years or so because these nonprofits aren't going away. Um, and in this case, they have sort of an injection of a lot more funding and they are manipulating movements and shifting at a much more accelerated pace. So there's great cause for concern and a deeper conversation around these issues. So hopefully this uh, topic will bring up some arguments and some challenges and folks will reconsider what we're doing and what we mean by fighting for liberation. 
Um, so yeah, we typically use this space at the end for a section called callouts or shoutouts. So any orgs you want to, or individuals you want to call out or shout out, I feel like, again, many of these shows are like all about callouts. Um, but it's because it's about accountability, there's a lack of accountability and that's what the nonprofit industry is really adept at, um, ducking out on. It's not being transparent, being extraordinarily opaque, um, and not being accountable to their communities. So perhaps this is one intervention among, among many that will continue. Uh, so call out shout outs, uh, any folks doing amazing badass work or organizations and so forth, um, that y'all want to support. Sure, the efforts of um, Protect Medicine Lake, that's been ongoing um, through many decades. And so that's, um, you know, efforts that through not only our tribe, Pit River tribe, but our relatives of our Wintu, Modoc, um, and Chasta peoples. I was, I was at Medicine Lake this past summer um, for our annual gathering. The water is extremely, extremely low. Um, power, um, power jet boats are still being allowed on the water. And so, um, it's very disheartening, especially in the time of, um, you know, wildfires and droughts due to mismanagement from both U.S. Forest Service and and BLM, um, that, you know, that like recreational camping and, and even motorboat use is still being allowed on the lake when, when it's at record level of being low, um, you know, that that's something that we are working with as a coalition. Um, those, again, are all, are all volunteer-led efforts. Um, the efforts to stop the Fountain Wind Project. Um, we There is a meeting that will be held this next week on that. Um, so, yeah, we just are ongoing sacred places struggles and, and just continuing to support one another within our communities. Um, you know, a lot of the um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and relative searches and, and supporting the families, that's all through, you know, volunteer efforts and, and coordination. Yeah, I think I said I don't want to name names, but Bioneers is definitely responsible for the exploitation of Indigenous peoples and communities. And, you know, they've got Native folks on board um, that are, are happy to participate with that. And so I'll definitely shout out Indians of all tribes, um, with Dr. Lenata Warjack and, you know, her efforts that they have an upcoming event November 20th um, that they, you know, are organizing with no budget. And so just in terms of, you know, supporting elders, supporting um, our activists that have very much put themselves on the front lines for the past 52 years, um, you know, I'm gathering together, you know, what, what we can in, in terms of, um, you know, their, their events and that programming and in terms of supporting them, because um, yeah, that's dedication right there to have an, absolutely zero budget and to say like, we're still going to pull off this event. We're still going to be on Alcatraz. We're still going to get families there. Um, no matter what, you know, um, that's, you know, absolutely something that I'll always continue to, to support. I'd say support Danae Landon water. That's the brother Mercury. And he does, he always does good work. I mean, it, it isn't a pop in pop out thing with him. He's wherever he is, he's benefiting the community. So go ahead and fund him. I'll give a shout out for um, uh, the upcoming thanks taking no thanks, no giving day. 
if you want, save up and donate then, because what we do is all the money that comes in gets redistributed out more often than not to the people that you hear on the show in, in terms of their organizing and this, what they're working on and things like that. Um, so tune in then. Um, and you can always donate outside of that to Indigenous Action, and we do the same thing anyway. Um, but it's a really optimal time to do that because you'll actually hear from a lot of um, organizers, campaigns, projects that people are working on. Um, and so if you can, if you can contribute, that's an, an ideal time that'll be coming on the, on, uh, the third Thursday of November. Yeah. So remember that, that the summertime is like our camp time or, or time that when we're, we're active and traditionally speaking too, that that's a time when, when we're making moves. So when you fund us, when you donate funds in November, we're going to get that, you know, and we're going to be able to work with it for the next year. So that helps with that. Yeah, I wanted to shout out to all the Indigenous mutual aid groups that started in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, IndigenousMutualAid.org, check out the directory there. Like all the active groups, fucking amazing. Um, particularly, I could I could list all of them, but I think um, if everybody could support Camp Red Sleeves, um, they're fucking amazing uh, folks holding it down for unsheltered relatives in so-called New Mexico um, but just go to the directory there and check out and support them. So I, I'd recommend um, for folks, it doesn't take a lot of research to find those folks who are grassroots autonomous on the ground organizers. Um, chances are they have like all the social media, all that shit, like they're screaming for fucking support, but it gets buried or lost in the noise of nonprofits who have these massive budgets and can hire PR firms or, you know, have these larger nonprofit think tanks that they work with and resources that are, you know, devised by foundations who actually like a lot of massive nonprofit foundations, they actually have think tanks and strategy centers that they create to specifically train trainers or, you know, select and cherry pick trainers who can go out and create and help devise strategies. Uh, a lot of the retreats that happen with nonprofit organizations are in concert with these professional uh, um, uh, uh, consult consultants who are really just, you know, representing and, and projecting out and embedding the agenda of these big green um, tax shelters for wealthy people. And ultimately at the end of the day, which is in the service of capitalism. So, you know, seek out and support those frontline folks like Camp McGizzy. Um, I think if we're talking about line three, um, a lot of heart, a lot of love support for the spirit of that fierce um, two-spirit and trans-led um, resistance out there who don't get a lot of the support and attention um, from, uh, you know, as much as the nonprofit industry. And this is this is a dynamic that folks had mentioned before um, in reference to Standing Rock. One of the dynamics that we didn't necessarily name is, is the way that, like, you know, there was the 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 level of extraction that occurred particularly with sacred stone regarding like resources that were hoarded and gatekept from other frontliners when people were donating thinking that their money was going to like the radical like red red warrior camp like militant organizing um 
people were donating to like those who had the platforms and the high level visibility. This is the same dynamic that we saw with the COVID-19 response and organizing of mutual aid on the Navajo Nation um, with um, Navajo COVID-19 Family Relief Fund is, is that they had the visibility. So a lot of people gave resources and they didn't, you know, nobody realized when there was a big split with them that at the end of the day, they started paying themselves in pocketing a huge amount, you know, of the, the, the those funds for their salary that they created. And they ultimately institutionalized themselves as a nonprofit organization. And so that, again, was just like that kind of gatekeeping, that kind of um, uh, hoarding of resources, uh you know, you get, you, it just takes a little bit of res- research to find out who's actually doing the fucking work. And, um, you know, if people are saying they're anti-capitalists, like, like dig in a little bit more. Cause like if Indian collective can say they're a collective, you know, that jargon can be co-opted. If they're saying they're decolonial, again, that shit can be, you know, um, co-opted because what they're really talking about is decolonizing wealth, which is, as I, as I mentioned before, a contradiction, uh, in terms, they're just, um, you know, fashioning an indigenous enterprise, uh, that really is maintaining, uh, colonial, uh, uh, architecture and infrastructure that inherently is just capitalist. So, um, you know, I guess that's a shout out and a call out. Like this whole episode has been a call out and I appreciate what you said, Bearcat. And I take that to heart about like, you know, we're naming names. We're talking about specific, um, individuals, um, but uh, this is a, a systemic issue. We're talking about structures as well. These are just groups that are um, the epitome of the problems that we face and you know, are, are um, necessary to critique um, because we see that these movements can go in much more interesting and vibrant and more meaningful directions. Uh, and that is, this is an important, critical time. You know, these conversations have been happening for a long time as well. This isn't in a new conversation, but we're also taking a risk. And I and I highly recommend supporting people like Bearcat, supporting people like Remy, and supporting like the grassroots, like radical frontline voices that are challenging these fucking systems and 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 um, courageous enough because we get a fucking black mark for this shit. We get blacklisted. Um, you know, and, and, and we, we suffered state fucking repression and violence because a lot of these nonprofits will look the other way or they'll fucking sell us out. Like I, I've, I've been part of organizing and actions where nonprofits have pointed the finger saying that we're the problems, you know, um, for, for, uh, for some of the mil- more militant organizing that we've done. Like, we're not talking out of our fucking asses for this. We're not like, you know, trying to beg people to say, Hey, um, take your resources away from this group and put them to in, into our hands. Like let's, let's actually be accomplices in this struggle in our fight to bring this system down. Cause we all fucking have a role. Um, but if we're going to just constantly funnel our energy resources, uh, and attention into these nonprofits that really become a bottleneck towards liberation and ultimately stifle and are a barrier to it, then, you know, you're not our accomplice. Uh, and, and- and let me add to that, like the blacklisting is real. It's 
they don't employ the most experienced people because the expe- the experienced people are you're talking to them. <laughs> like that's who's talking here. Like they don't we don't end up in it, it so so you're actually being led by mediocrities or people that have never done any of the shit that they're talking about. And so like and so the that's that's another reason they're tr- they have to actually black mark black ball and and tear us down individ- as individuals quite literally targeted and that's just a a price that gets paid for doing it but i look at it like this if like if you're if if your safety matters to you then why are you going with the least safe people that know the least amount the subject. And and they do that shit while they profiteer off of our work. I could share a lot of examples where we've done a lot of like fucking groundwork and vol- on a volunteer basis. Um, and then that shit has been used or built on and then reworked um, and rebranded, you know, by these nonprofits as well. So like, you know, I, we could set conditions. Like, I mean, I think Indian collectives should just relinquish all those funds directly into the hands of indigenous autonomous organizers and without condition, without branding, without like fucking, you know, uh, um, receipts. receipts or um, selfies. Like if you look at some of the billboards and they're like art projects that they're doing as part of the land back awareness, like campaign, they're, they're giving money to clear channel or these billboard corporations for, for visibility, which is really just the politics of recognition. Um, and uh, they're uh, putting their brands, their logos on it. And it's just, it's just so disingenuous, but this is what money does. People will, will hey, gravitate hey, to that me shit. And I will go fund me and I will go wheat paste over their shit and every fucking all 20 of their fucking billboards and I'll show you my receipts. I'll show you it does not cost however many millions they're, they're going to pay for it. Yeah. It's like that movement amnesia of like, you know, the tactics of the billboard liberation front that was developed for decades. And, and this, this shit is done with, with what, like you can liberate paint, get a fucking brush, you know, $12. yeah. Whereas like they're paying how much money for this massive campaign. It's like, we got to be, we're, if we're, if we respect the struggles and the the um, intentions of our ancestors and the fight and resistance against uh, colonial violence, then we got to be fucking resourceful. And if we get like material support and resources in, then we sure as hell got to be as intentional as possible into where that goes. And if we waste it on a PR campaign that pads the pockets of fucking, you know, these billboard corporations and also like you know, is a ta- part of the, the dynamic of a tax shelter for wealthy space colonists like Jeff Bezos, like, and, and, and who are violent against workers uh, in, in his corporation. He's built off of the fucking blood of people throughout the world. Then fuck that. You know, I don't want any part of that. And, and on that note, we're going to close out. Uh, I think Morningstar, you wanted to jump in here and say something. Just want to say how appreciative I am of all of you. Yeah. When I'm feeling really disheartened and I'm pulling up 990s and looking at these ridiculous budgets that are claiming our work and claiming our organizing. I do know that there are uh, folks that are right here, um, you know, part of this conversation that, um, you know, that aren't taking the bait and, um, you know, that we, we do trust that, you know, the work will continue and there are no dollar signs or strings attached to it.
Yeah, and Sago, thank you so much to everybody for joining as we wrap up this podcast. Thank you so much uh, for deepening this conversation. We know it's much of a longer conversation and it will continue beyond this. It's much deeper conversation and we had time to even go into but hopefully around your fires and different movement spaces this will provide some ammunition for you to understand which ways we can be more effective and this is a conversation that should continue on that level so really appreciate y'all sticking with us uh continue to check out our podcast subscribe like share on typical podcast platforms also the channel zero anarchist network at channel zero network.com you can email us pictures of burning cop cars uh, at iainfo at protonmail.com and our website check it out indigenousaction.org that's where you can find the podcasts and a lot of other radical commentary and news reports as well so yeah and we will see you next time